and that your word wouldn't return void. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 14. Chapter 14. While you do that, we're going to play a game of Would You Rather. And so uh, the, the person that maybe you came with or somebody seated next to you, if you're an introvert and you say, I'm not playing your games. I am you. I get you. And so uh, just think it to yourself. That's totally fine. Um, the question is, would you rather sing your favorite song in front of an arena full of people or one-on-one with the person who wrote it? Discuss. All right, we did this in all three services. Uh, raise your hand if you were arena full of people. Perfect. Andrea, do you want to? Here's your shot. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, raise your hand if you picked one with the person who wrote it. Yeah, that has been the answer most of the morning, which has surprised me because an arena full of people, in my mind, just, I'm never going to see these people again. I don't know them. They don't know me. One-on-one feels very personal. And if I butcher it, they're going to have thoughts. All right, keep, keep that sort of would-you-rather idea in mind. Um, I like doing would-you-rather questions. Some people do would-you-rathers, and they're two very positive things, like would you rather have a million dollars or the vacation home of your dreams, you know, at the location of your choosing. I like to do would-you-rathers that are way more uncomfortable, like would you rather unexpectedly, one time a day, stub your toe, or have Cheeto dust on your fingers all the time? (laughs) Which would you rather? Uh, So keep that in mind. I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 14. We're going to work our way through the whole chapter. We'll circle back to our would you rather idea toward the end. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1, says this. In those days... King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Kedorlaomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Beersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemeber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sedim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Kedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Would you rather read this passage three times in front of an audience? <laughs> Verse 7. Then they came back to invade in Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor, went out and lined up for battle in the Sedim Valley against Kedor, King Kedorleomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. 
Now the Sedim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the king of Sodom and kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, son of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, the chance to gather together as a church, to be in fellowship with one another, to sing praises together to you, to take communion alongside one another, to open your word. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would open our heart that we might treasure Jesus above everything else. God, would he be most supreme in our lives. God, would your spirit show us that for the first time, maybe this morning, God? Would your spirit deepen that treasuring in our hearts for the hundredth time? Take your word, apply it to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Over the course of Abram's life, we are going to see recorded a number of different practical situations that he gets himself ensnared in. We've seen two of those already, one in Egypt, one in Canaan. Now here's a third one involving his nephew Lot. Each time, the challenge is to first and foremost wrap our heads around what is the practical matter that Abram is dealing with. And so we're going to start with that. And then to try to figure out sort of what's the deeper truth behind the practical matter before figuring out why it is that Abram responds the way that he does or how that's helpful or illustrative for us. And then trying to figure out how it is that essentially out of what is a thousands-year-old brief war report, we as followers of Jesus today are to see something about who God is and how it is that we live in light of him. And so that's, that's how we're going to work through this this morning. But I actually want to start with a general sort of Bible reading application point. We've, we've been hammering this nail throughout Genesis, and we're just going to keep doing it. We all have the urge, 
when we approach any passage of scripture to rightly ask the question, what does this mean for my life and how it is that I live? That's a good question. The challenge is that arriving at the answer of that question requires that we understand any given passage on the terms that it was written within. And so if we don't understand a text, we cannot rightly apply a text. And in something like this in Genesis chapter 14, I think the problems or the challenges are twofold. Number one, there are so many difficult things to pronounce in this passage, whether it be names or places, that you you sit down, you open up your Bible, Genesis 14 is on the reading plan that day, you get five words in. In those days, King Amraphel, and you're like, we'll pick it up tomorrow in Genesis 15 especially as you scan your way down. And then if, if you try to like press on and you get to all of these places and city names, most of us are not great with Middle Eastern geography. Most of us are certainly not great with ancient Middle Eastern geography. And the whole thing is so foreign to us that it becomes very easy to sort of passively lapse into a, a mindset that says, well, some passages of scripture are useful and helpful, And some passages of scripture are gibberish. And I'm not 100% sure why God saw fit to include them, but I'll work with the ones that are helpful and I'll just sort of glaze past the ones that I don't quite understand. This is one of those passages. The other challenge is that when we get into these and we're trying to figure out what it is that's going on and it all sounds so foreign, we arrive at something that is easily understandable. And our brain sort of jumps to the thought that, well, the easy to understand part must be the point. All the confusing stuff is just garnish. When I get to the thing that my Western modern brain can understand, that must be the thing that I'm supposed to apply. Not always the case. If the Bible is a book full of God revealing himself to us, that alone ought to be motivation to try to figure out and understand what's being said within it. The Bible is a book of God revealing himself to us, but it also reveals something about who we are and how it is that we as humans are to live in relation to this God who is revealing himself to us. You take all of that together, and there's literally endless, boundless motivation for trying to understand this book so that we can understand the God who is revealing himself and how it is that we live rightly in relationship with him. The challenge, of course, is that understanding this ancient book at times, can be difficult and time-consuming. And so I'm human. I get how it plays out in the morning or whenever it is that you, you try to carve out some time to engage with Scripture. You've got burdens in your life, obligations, meetings, kids to get places, stuff that you're supposed to do. You've got seasons and circumstances that might be heavy that that make it so your brain is in a different place or your heart is sort of clouded with other concerns and cares and you get into a passage like this and you say, I just don't have time to figure this out. So here we are on a Sunday morning. Most of us, when we come to church, we're willing to sort of at least try our best to set the distractions aside so that we can try to understand. And so this morning, we're gonna take what is a challenging passage, Genesis 14, and try to like carve through all of the difficulty to understand what's there. So then we can see what it is that we're supposed to understand about God and us and how it is that we apply this. But we have to understand it. 
before we can apply it. And so, whenever I'm struggling to understand a passage of, of Scripture, I've got some defaults. I generally start making like charts or like, can I write some things down out of this passage that would help me understand what's happening? Is there a map that I could find that would sort of anchor me in the right places? So we're just going to start with all of that. Part of the struggle in understanding what's happening here is the fact that we have no context for what's going on in like the ancient world of international politics and warfare. The whole thing is foreign. The names are hard to pronounce. The context doesn't make sense. And so it can be a struggle. Well, here's chart number one. We're told that this is four kings against five kings. Verse nine tells you that. So who are those kings and, and why are they in battle against one another? There are four kings who represent sort of like nations or you could think of them as empires. The player in this is a guy named King Chedorlaomer or Chedorlaomer. I'm going to exclusively refer to him from here on out as Chedi because that's easier to say. There's a, there's a king named Chedi. And then he's got three sort of other kings that he's in some form of an alliance with. They rule over nations. Now, this is close to what we would think of as a king, but by no means are we talking about like Rome or Egypt or Babylon or anything even near the size of the United States of America. Four of those nation rulers come together, and there are five rulers of cities. They're also called kings. We would think of them more as mayors or in an ancient context. They're like more like tribal sort of leaders. Bira, Birsha, Shinab, Shemeber, and the man who doesn't get a name in here, he's just the king of Zeor, Zoar. They are cities that fall within the area that Chedi rules over. And so something happens that causes Chedorlaomer and his buddies to need to go to war against these five cities in order to restore order or control or something like that. What is the thing that takes place? Well, first, let's understand where we are. Here's a map. We're told that this all plays out in the Sedim Valley. Now, the Sedim Valley is in gray there. Uh, what's hard about this is that the Sedim Valley doesn't even exist anymore. The reason for that is because the Dead Sea now fills the area that is grayed out. The Dead Sea in Abram's day was the smaller black portion up above. It has since expanded, and what was the Sedim Valley is now just what we would call the Dead Sea. You can see the five cities that surround that area, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Adma, Zeboim. There's where we are. Sea of Galilee, way up north, Jordan River, those are just kind of anchor us. Sea of Galilee of Jesus' fame, Jordan River, the Israelites are going to cross that eventually to go into the promised land. So what is at stake here? Rulers of these sort of like nations, the four kings, would rule over cities that had their own rulers, and there was a general sense of how the relationship worked. The nation or the empire would sort of provide protection to these cities so that foreign rulers wouldn't sweep in all the time and try to run roughshod over them, and meanwhile, the cities would provide like a tribute to those national rulers. Some of your goods, finances, oftentimes individuals for military campaigns. Something happens 12 years in. That's what we're told. For 12 years, everything is fine. In the 13th year, these five cities rebel against Kedorlaomer, and thus he has got to come and restore order. In the 14th year, he does that. What's most likely at stake for Chedorlaomer, Kedorlaomer in this situation, we're told in verse 10. 
is asphalt. Your translation might say bitumen. It's the second time we've seen that in the book of Genesis. The first time was in chapter 11. We were told that people moved into the land of Shinar. That's one of the areas that a king was mentioned as ruling over. And that while they were in Shinar, they used asphalt, bitumen, some translations said slime, in order to make bricks so that they could build their city and their big tower up into the heavens to make a name for themselves. Why does Chetty need to keep this area under control? Well, if you're building a nation, you also want to be able to build bricks. So if these places rebel and he wants the resource, he's got to restore order. Him and his buddies go on a military campaign. They sweep into the Sedim Valley and the rulers are the kind of tribal leaders of these five cities come out to meet them. There's what's happening. And all of that happens in the first 11 verses so that it can tell you verse 12. The empire, the nation wins, womp, womp, big brother, right? And Lot is taken captive by Kedor Laomer and his buddies as they plunder the goods and some people from the city of Sodom. All of that is given to you so that when you get to verse 12, you can understand this is the problem. The practical matter at play here is that Lot has been taken captive. Now, an ancient Israelite or an ancient person reads this, and intuitively, they understand all the background knowledge. It's very hard for us to get ourselves into what's happening here so that we can understand. But Lot being taken captive is not the point of the story. We've got to keep reading. In verse 13, one person survives the skirmish out here in the Sedim Valley and runs or rides to where Abram is living near a man named Mamre. We're also told that Mamre has two brothers, Eshkol and Aner. And that verse uh, 13, there's some sort of treaty that exists between those men and Abram. So whatever Abram's about to do in order to get Lot back, those men and their families are also going to be pulled into it. Abram grabs 318 men trained from his household and presumably some others from the other three guys, and they ride north in pursuit of Chedor Leomer and his uh, spoils of war. They catch up to them. In the night, we're told, they deploy against them and defeat them, probably like the rear guard of this military unit. They get Lot back, chase Chetty and his buddies all the way north, way off the map to Damascus. They turn around back south to go home. All of that is told to you so that you can get the point. Lot gets saved. Lot was in danger, practical problem. Abram responds, practical problem solved. Lot has been returned back to him. But Lot being rescued is not the point of the story. To which a logical or appropriate question would be, then what is the point? Because my Bible breaks the section there. And if I were to just sit down and read Genesis 14, I'd probably stop there thinking that that must be one unit. But what happens in the next little scene is part of the whole thing. If you just stopped there in verse 16, what would the takeaway be? Uh, protect your family? It's like a Liam Neeson taken situation. Like, I have a unique set of skills, says Abram, and I will chase you down to get my family back. And that is what we're supposed to do with it. No, we keep going. As the group travels back south, they're met again by 
the king of Sodom. His name was Bera. So Sodom fled, or the king of Sodom fled there after the battle. He must have regrouped in the mountains, heard about Abram's victory, and rode up to a place called the Sheva Valley, which is near Salem, the city up there, kind of north and west of the Dead Sea. He meets Abram in that valley as Abram is returning with Lot and everything that had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Once they get there, suddenly, out of nowhere, verse 18, another man appears. Melchizedek, we're told, king of Salem. Salem is the city of peace. That's going to be Jerusalem in the future. It's the same place. Uh, We're told later in the book of Hebrews, way later, New Testament later, that Melchizedek means king of righteousness. The last part of his name is from the Hebrew root word tzedakah, which means righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the city. We're also told in Hebrews that it's important that he's a priest to most high God. That's listed here, but the author of Hebrews brings it out and says, here you've got a man who marries the king of righteousness and the king of peace with this priestly office, and he's this very unique man. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 spend a lot of time trying to help us understand who Melchizedek is and how that relates to Jesus. Moses appears not to care very much. He doesn't say anything about who this man is, just that he shows up there in the Sheva Valley as the king of Sodom and Abram are about to have a conversation. Melchizedek rolls in with some bread and wine. Don't read too far into that. It would have been a customary sort of practice. What is the point? The point is not, who is Melchizedek? The point is, how does Abram interact with Melchizedek and then subsequently with the king of Sodom? And so that's what we see. Verse 19, he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And then with no explanation, Abram gives him 10% of everything he's just carted off from Chetty and his boys. The insightful part of that is the last statement in verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Application number two. We've got to understand so we can apply. And then application number two, Melchizedek reminds Abram and us that all our practical matters are spiritual matters. Lot gets tangled up in this thing. He's taken prisoner. It's just a practical thing. Abram's going to go save his family member. Melchizedek says, it was God who gave you victory over that. This thing that seemed practical was actually spiritual. And that's been the case for Abram in our last three passages. The situation in Egypt was practical. Abram thought he could die. And yet we find out it was very spiritual. God intervenes in order to maintain his promises and his, his uh, covenant uh, with Abraham to fulfill those plans. The situation in Canaan, that was practical. There's not enough land for Lot's herds and my herds, but it was also spiritual. Abram says, I don't have to grasp at that land. You can pick, Lot. The Lord has promised me blessing. The saving of Lot was practical. Melchizedek arrives on the scene and reminds Abram and us that it was actually spiritual. And the Old and the New Testament remind us of that reality over and over and over again. Later in Genesis, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau older, Jacob younger. Esau comes in from hunting. He's tired. 
hungry. The text tells us he's exhausted, and Jacob offers him a bowl of stew. It's practical. You're hungry, Esau. Swap me your birthright for this stew that you love. Esau wants to solve a practical problem. I'm exhausted and hungry. Give me the stew. What do I care about the birthright? That was a very spiritual decision. Now the line of God's blessing is not going to go to Esau. It's going to come through Jacob. Later in the book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers are annoyed by his dreams and his arrogance and some of the things that they're saying. So in order to get rid of him, they dump him into a pit and then sell him to, uh, to some traders who are headed to Egypt. Seems practical. The brothers are annoyed. They dump him into a pit. It's very spiritual. That's how Israel is going to end up in Egypt. The Israelites in the book of Exodus thank Moses, their intercessor between them and God, that he's gone up onto this mountain to meet with God and he's died there. He's gone for so long. They don't think he's ever coming back. So what do they do? They call Aaron, the priest, to them. And they say, we need someone to worship. Moses is dead. We don't know what we're supposed to do. Aaron says, why don't you melt down all of your jewelry and all of your gold and fashion it into an idol? Seems like a practical thing. The man of God is gone. It's a very spiritual thing. In the book of 1 Samuel, the king of Israel is Saul. He's got his military out at a place called Gilgal. And he makes an agreement with Samuel, the high priest, that Samuel will come in seven days. They'll make an offering to the Lord there so that God will bless them in their military endeavor. Seven days comes. Samuel has not arrived when Saul would like him to. So what does Saul do? I'll just make the offering myself. Seems like a practical solution. We want God's blessing before this military battle. The priest isn't coming. I'll do the offering. Turns out it was very spiritual. What happens? God tells Samuel, our Saul, I'm removing the kingdom from you. New Testament, Jesus healing people, right? Seems very practical. Here's a man who hasn't ever been able to walk. His friends carry him over to this house where Jesus is. They dig a hole in the roof. They drop him down. Jesus looks at the man. He says, take up your mat and go home. Your sin is forgiven. Not simply your legs now work. Seems like a practical thing. It's actually very spiritual. The church in Corinth is taking communion wrong and Paul is corresponding with them via letters. It would appear from the book of the letter of 1 Corinthians that the people in Corinth are gathering together for church. The rich people get there first. The day laborers haven't been able to come. And the rich people are eating all the food and drinking all the wine and getting drunk before the day laborers can get there and take communion with them. Paul says, not just fix the way you're doing communion. He highlights that that's a spiritual problem, not just a practical thing that they need to do differently. I'm not saying this because I'm the pastor. The same is true in our lives. Our practical matters are spiritual matters. How is it that we engage with people that are cruel toward us? When they take a swing at us, do we just take a swing back, right? It's just practical, like they're mean, I'll get my pound of flesh as well. What do we do when we're trying to make decisions about our child's activities? How do we allocate our money and our finances? Should we or should we not take on new commitments or promotions even at work? On a Sunday morning, just very simply, are we going to church today or are we not? How do we engage with the brokenness of the world around us and in our culture? What's our tone in social media posts? How are we parenting our child's discipline issues? Should we or should we not date or marry this particular person? How is it that someone uses their time now that they're newly retired? This is all very practical things. It feels like, well, we just sit down over dinner and we 
have a conversation about it. We make the decision that we think is best. The Bible would say all of are actually spiritual matters, that the way that you make those decisions says something about your heart and that that reflects a spiritual reality. Abram's entire life, Genesis 12 through the end of his portion of the book, shows the depth of this reality. He gets himself in thorny practical matters, but there's always something deeper happening there. And so in his response here in verses 21 through 24, you see that Abram understands the reality of this situation. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, take the possessions for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so you can never say, I made Abram rich. The king of Sodom makes an offer. You give me my people back because if I don't have people, I can't be a king. You give me my people back, you can keep all of the stuff that you've taken, which presumably was not the king's stuff. It was the people's stuff. So not a super generous offer really on his part. There's nothing at stake here for the king of Sodom. You give me my people back so I can be king and then you can keep all my people's stuff. Enjoy. But there's two problems with that. Giving the king of Sodom his people back would mean giving him who? Lot, who he just went to save because it would appear that the king of Sodom cannot actually protect his nephew. And so if I'm giving you your people back, why did I just go and do this? The bigger issue comes from Abram's response. I won't take a thread or a sandal strap. Why? Because I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. God made me promises that he would bless me. And at the end of my life, I don't want you to be able to say it was me that blessed Abram. The treasure that I'm after is not the plunder from this battle. It's the reward of God's covenant blessings to me. That's the thing that's most important. Now we've arrived at the point of the entire account. In the big context of Genesis, what's being laid out for us? It's all about God's covenant promises. What are those promises that God makes to Abram? What does it look like for Abram to live in light of those promises? We've seen him miss the mark in Egypt. We've seen him sort of nail it in Canaan. And now we're seeing him stake everything on it. The king of Sodom says, here's your chance to be rich. You can have everything. Abram says, that's not the treasure that I seek. I want a different reward than the one that you can offer me. At this moment, Genesis 14 it would appear that Abram is beautifully committed to the blessings and the treasures of God's covenant promises as his only reward. He's so committed to those blessings and treasures that he's not only willing to walk away from the 10% that he gave Melchizedek, but also from the remaining 90% that he got offered by the king of Sodom, which is kind of an ironic, funny moment in the story. The king of Sodom says, you can keep all the plunder. Abram says, I don't want it, but also I gave 10% to the guy that's headed that way. He's way over there, and he's got 10% of your people's stuff. Abram says, I won't let you make me rich. Because all my treasure and all of my blessing is wrapped up in the promises that God has made to me and that he will fulfill for me. Genesis 12 in Egypt, Abram does not need to make God's side of the covenant promises happen for himself. 
Genesis chapter 13, Abram does not need to grasp after the things of the world. He can trust that God will be faithful. Genesis chapter 14, he does not need the treasures of this world in place of the treasure of God's covenant. And so what's the big point of this whole thing? Well, that for God's people, the reward of the covenant is life's greatest treasure. That's the reward. The main point isn't the battle that takes place. The main point isn't saving Lot. The main point isn't answering all the Melchizedek questions. The main point is the promises of God. This whole section of Genesis is all about those promises, and we're seeing Abram how, figure out how life works in light of them. And brother or sister in Christ, the same challenge exists for the follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that all the promises and blessings of God have been fulfilled by and are bound up in the Son, in Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to live life based on those blessings and promises. To be a follower of Jesus is to understand that the reward of the covenant is life's greatest treasure. And so what is that reward? What is that treasure? Is it forgiveness from sin? I mean, we certainly need that. Is it salvation? And don't get me wrong, that's great. Is it being loved fully and unconditionally by God? I mean, also, that's wonderful. But what is the great treasure? What's the covenant reward? Give the Sunday school answer. Jesus. That's the reward. I mean that in as non-hokey and as non-cheesy a way as is possible. The greatest treasure in your life, follower of Jesus, is not the benefits that Jesus gives to you. It is Jesus himself. For God's people, for followers of Jesus, for Christians, fill that in however you want, the reward of the covenant is life's greatest treasure. Jesus is life's greatest treasure. So, let's play a game of would you rather. All the treasures of the world. I don't mean just like Bill Gates kind of riches or Jeff Bezos kind of riches. I mean literally all the treasures of the world or Jesus. Would you rather? The perfect family. Kids that obey wonderfully, marriage that functions perfectly, schedules that run on time and aren't overfull, a household that gets everything done when it's supposed to be done with no chaos, kids that make it out the door with two shoes, or Jesus. That promotion that you've worked decades for, and the salary boost that comes with it, or Jesus the fame and recognition that your heart craves or Jesus a spouse or Jesus children or Jesus that house on the lake or in the mountains or wherever your dream vacation spot is or Jesus Now, I understand that when I ask those questions, and we're all seated in here on a Sunday, that you say, of course, I'd rather have Jesus. That's the answer we give when we're in places like this. But let me ask it this way. If someone were writing the narrative 
account of your life. And they looked at the way that you interacted with all of the thorny practical situations that come up in your life. And they just jotted down the account of that. Would it be obvious based on the way that you respond and the things that you do in your practical matters that the great treasure of your life is Jesus? What if all they had were your social media posts? What if all they had was your prayer journal? Would it be obvious that the great treasure of your life is Jesus? Or would it look like it's something else? Now, I will grant that if you're being honest, you're like, it's probably a mixed bag. That's reality of life in a world stained by sin as we all wrestle with our own flesh. But if we could just hold up like some giant machine that takes like a spiritual x-ray of your heart, what would the great treasure be that it illuminates inside there? Jesus? Or something else? Something else in the world or just one of the benefits of Jesus swapped in in his place? If you're gonna pass out communion, will you come grab these and start the trays going around the room? Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member here at LCF. If you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be weird. The Bible tells us this is a meal for followers of him, so you can just let the tray go by, no judgment, it's okay. Um, Grab those and hold on to them for a few moments. The way that Jesus talks about this reality in his own ministry is in is in the book of Mark, he says, for what does it gain a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his life, forfeit his soul? Would you rather gain the whole world or have Jesus? There's a man in our congregation, he's, he's retired. He comes by my office uh, every once in a while middle of the day. So he was in my office on Wednesday, and and we're having a back and forth conversation. Um, We usually chat for, I don't know, 25, 35, 45 minutes until he decides the conversation is over, and then he just pops up and he walks back out. And uh, it's wonderful. But on Wednesday, he swung by, and he had kind of a string of questions that all centered on death. What happens when you die? Like, what are the mechanics of it? Does my soul sleep for a while? Do I go straight to be in heaven? Do I go straight to like new heaven and new earth as Revelation depicts it for us? Or is there some stopover spot in the middle? Like, what are the mechanics of all of that? And so we're, we're sort of talking through that and the scriptures that surround it. And then uh, he asked about like, well, where do you think heaven is? Like right now? Where's, it, where's its location? It can't just be up as we think about, like, heaven is up, you know? He's like, it can't be up. Like, where is it? And then uh, we started talking about whether or not we'll recognize people in eternity. Like the people that our loved ones and that we had a relationship with, are we going to recognize them? We talked about that for a little while. And then he said, or what about, you know, sometimes when you go to a funeral and they'll talk about the person who has passed away greeting you when you come into heaven. He said, do you think that's the way that it works? And the whole time we're having this conversation, uh, there were song lyrics running through my head. 
I'm working on this sermon. We're having this conversation. And it's, it's a hymn that if you know, you probably know uh, because of Fernando Ortega. Um, he sort of popularized the hymn, but it's actually a Negro spiritual uh, called Give Me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus when I am alone. Oh, when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. Last verse. And when I come, die. Oh, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, you got a whole day full of would-you-rathers. Is it give me Jesus? Is that the great treasure of my life? Or is it give me something else? Whatever situations you find yourself in, be they difficult and trying and heavy or joyful and triumphant, Is it give me Jesus or just give me relief or give me more of this thing? And when you come to die, however it is that you picture what heaven is going to be like, is the thing that you picture that the great wonder and beauty of eternity is not going to be whatever the sort of like material or physical realities of heaven are, for lack of better verbiage there. It's not that you are going to see the people that have gone before you as, as wonderful as that would be. It's, it's not like what the glorified bodies are going to be. You know, when I come to die, give me fast legs. <laughs> Is it that whatever exists exactly in eternity If the great treasure weren't there, you wouldn't want to be there. Is that the reality? Or is it, my picture of heaven is so wonderful, I could take or leave Jesus in that place because my heart is set on other stuff. The reward of the covenant is Jesus, and that is life's great treasure. So you got your communion elements there in front of you. We do this a couple times a month. Like, this, this is the great treasure. The body of Christ given for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. We get Jesus because of Jesus. That's the wonder of the gospel. Like, you get him as your great treasure because he gave himself so that you could get him, so that you could treasure him. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And you hold these two little things in your hands, 
And do you think to yourself, yeah, my hands would rather grab onto something different. I want, the, I want the blessings that Jesus could give me, but I could take or leave the actual son. No, for the people of God, the reward of the covenant is life's greatest treasure. And you could take or leave everything else because you have him. Brother or sister in Christ, this is, this is the body of Christ given for you. Eat and treasure in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Drink and treasure in remembrance of him. Abram says, I don't want the plunder because I want the rewards of the covenant that God has made with me. Brother or sister in Christ, we can turn down the treasure of the world because we have the reward of the covenant, and that's Jesus. We get him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Would you teach our hearts to treasure the Son? Would you teach us to see our practical matters as spiritual matters? And in all of the thorny situations that life in a broken world puts us in, God, would your spirit teach us to grasp only after Jesus, to cling only to Jesus, to treasure Jesus above everything else. Help us to cherish him as life's great reward and supreme treasure. God, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. If you're able to stand, let's stand and sing.
think one of the challenges in in this idea of treasuring Jesus above everything else is that we've sort of like we've sort of made it seem as though what Jesus is is like a helpful addition to life. Well, you got you got all your life and all your practical matters, and then if you're a follower of Jesus, you can just add him to the mix, and that will make everything better, rather than the biblical picture, which is that there's life, and you can either build it entirely upon Jesus or entirely upon something else. And sort of the problem behind the problem then is that we kind of think when, when we come into heaven and stand stand before the Lord, Jesus will just sort of boost us. Like he's going to kind of help us in that moment. It's, no, it's going to be all him entirely or not. And the challenge between that today and that moment then is to figure out how it is that we live with him as supreme treasure, with him as most valuable, with him as life's greatest thing. That's the struggle. And so my my sort of closing encouragement or exhortation is that as you face every single one of life's little would-you-rathers, be it really small or really significant, just, just pause and remind yourself the treasure is Jesus. And what does it look like to choose him in that thing in real life right now in the same way that for eternity in his presence we will choose him? What's that look like now? in light of what we know will be true for all of eternity. Life's greatest treasure is the reward of the covenant, and the reward of the covenant is Jesus. Amen? Amen. We love you guys. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.